we're back into Exodus, and sometimes it feels like you're moving slower through there, uh, but here we're coming to what would be called the pinnacle of the plague plot line. And I don't know about you, when you're watching a movie, do you ever feel like it's reaching a certain pinnacle? Uh, who here has ever watched a Hallmark movie? You guys can admit it, right? Hallmark movies are all the same, right? 20 minutes before it ends, we're going to reach some catastrophe in the relationship. You know it's coming. It's always the same. It's guaranteed. Um, and here's what's great about the Hallmarks. They do end well. Um, they always get together at the end. They always get married, blah, 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 blah. It turns out great. Um, so predictable, but there's always a point of where we know, and, and if you're a, a person who likes literature, if you read a story, uh, most authors are a little more complex than Hallmark movie writers, but either way, they're, they're gonna, you're going to see a pinnacle or multiple ones, and as you read it, you kind of notice that the story is building to this point of tension or ending, and that is exactly what we're in right now, is we're walking through, that was the right button, good, um, we've walked through three groupings of plagues, right? We've walked through, and they've kind of escalated, they're getting worse as we go, and so you see this kind of First is the blood, and they, can, they could copy that. They could copy the frogs. They couldn't do the gnats, and it's just become really pesky. And then you get these flies that are biting and causing injury. Then you're starting to see your livestock die, and, and that to us doesn't always resonate because most of us are not farmers or, or, or agrarian society, but they would have been their whole livelihood, their whole economy. This is like a stock market crash. This is everything, uh, shelves empty feeling. This is horrible. Then you have their own physical problems that it's building. Then hail that will kill you. And then you go on to locusts that devour everything that's left. And then we landed on darkness. And that's chapter 10. And chapter 10 kind of closes with an interesting dialogue because Pharaoh says to Moses, you're never going to see me again. And when you do, you're going to die. And one of the things that's interesting is as you dive into chapter 11, you think scripture contradicts itself. But you have to understand that the end of 10 is woven into 11. And so you're going to get information from different times back and forth. So 11 is actually a continuation of um, the story. It switches back and forth in timing. But while we're in the midst of darkness, we're in this last plague, we're going to watch the pinnacle of the plague story. And the reason I call it the pinnacle of the plague story is as you work through Exodus, you're going to see this up and down components to the story. So we're going to watch, after this, we're going to watch Egypt, not Egypt, we're going to watch Israel exit, and then Egypt come back and change their mind. And it's part of the story, because Egypt is sacked, except what remains for them is their military might. And again, I think it's Thutmose Third, and he was known for his military might. And so what's fascinating is after this catastrophic loss to himself and his family and to his country, he goes back to what he is the best at, and he was a great military guy. So this is, he was constantly doing campaigns. Um, if you remember, his stepmother ruled for 20 years because he was a minor, and when she died, he kind of eradicated her history, and then he took over. But during those years, he was gone. She ruled the country. He basically was fighting. He was a warrior, and he was good at it. Um, but all that setting up for the final plague. That's what chapter 11 looks like. So one through three of chapter 11 is, is more of a background. It's giving you a little bit of an idea. Um, some commentators, it's usually liberal ones, ones that don't believe in the 
uh, inspiration of Scripture or are going to find a way to attack it, are going to look at 1 through 3 and think it's a later edition because of how Moses talks about himself. Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. Uh, it's, a, it's a mistake on their part because 1 through 3 is background. He's trying to tell us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what was taking place. So, and the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Which we've talked about, remember? These plagues are building, and when they climax here with this last plague, not only will Israel be permitted to leave, they will be forced to leave. Egypt will want to get rid of them. And remember, Israel struggles with their heart, and they go back, and they've known this place for so long, and they're, they're, you're going to see it when we get into the, the desert. They're going to complain and wish they were in Egypt. I wish I was in Egypt, and I wish I could go back to eating like I want. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, is going to make sure no one thinks, I'd rather stay. I like my house. I like my neighborhood. He's going to make them be forced out. Then it says, speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Background information. And I want you to realize something through this whole story, because we're going to do two chapters. We're dealing with the final plague, which is the culminating plague that's going to take place. And I want you to notice how often our mind is shifted to what God is doing. And I want you to keep sight of that. Actually, when the plague unfolds, it's two verses. But the Passover and the remembrance of it involves almost the whole two chapters is what we're going to talk about. So what we're looking at as we set up for the final plague is this background. And God is orchestrating that the Egyptians are looking with favor on their Israelite neighbors. Now, it doesn't mean they're living close by. The nation of Egypt is wanting to get rid of these people, and they'll do anything to get them out of there. And it says that Moses has the ear of all the leaders in Egypt, except for one. His name is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, like a typical tyrant, is completely disconnected from his people. He has no idea what they think. He doesn't care what they think because he has his agenda. And so then you build, chapter 11 goes in verse 4, it builds to this warning, 4 through 8, and I want you to see, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the gods that are going to be confronted with this one. Uh, and Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. Now he's back talking to Pharaoh. So this is before Pharaoh says, Get out of my face. I never want to see you again. We're jumping back to 10, and he's talking to Pharaoh. And all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. So whatever animal they had left, if it was a firstborn, it is going to be gone. So you've got a devastated land, and there's more devastation coming, but every household will experience the loss of a firstborn. Every house will have mourning. And it says, And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it anymore. I don't know of any time in history, I know we've had massive loss of life through some of the, the different plagues and diseases that have swept through maybe Europe and different areas. Uh, we've seen genocide, so we've seen horrible loss. But this is just, when I say a clean sweep through all the people, every home will feel very 
poignant pain. Because you just look at the room here and just take a minute and think your firstborn dies. And it's just all the way down the line. And everyone is feeling the pain. Because somebody is a firstborn in your family. And that's going to feel all the way through. So that's why that pain is going to be there. But against any of the children of Israel, and this is an interesting phrase, shall not a dog move his tongue, which bark, make a noise. Now there's two sides to that dog thing. One, dogs were not what we think of dogs, right? Your dog gets to sleep in your bed, right? One of my dogs sleeps in Landon's bed. That's not how they viewed dogs back then. They were a pest and a nuisance, so that's one angle. I'm going to mention this. Anubis was the god of death and embalming, and guess what he was depicted as? He was a dog. And so the god of death for the Egyptians And don't miss God's play on words and connection here. Won't be able to even bark at Israel. You are what? Powerless against my people. That's what God's saying. Goes on against man or beast that you may know how that the the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me saying... Get thee out and all the people that follow thee. And after that, I will go. And he went out from Pharaoh in a what? He was, he was furious. So it goes back to Pharaoh. This is where you're seeing the dialogue in 10. And 11 looks like he's back at Pharaoh. He's not back at Pharaoh. That all took place in the same time. One through three is your background. So in the midst of darkness, and Pharaoh's not going to give what, what Moses wants, to allow to unfold what God has demanded through nine plagues. Now we unfold this last one. By the way, there's another God, Osiris. He was the God who judged the dead, and he depicted the deity of Pharaoh. And I want you to realize when he takes out the firstborn, any God they worship about death was gone. Pharaoh, his firstborn, when Pharaoh dies, his firstborn is made into a God and is now personified by Osiris. So when he takes out the firstborn and Pharaoh's firstborn dies, what have they just eradicated? The cult of Pharaoh worship, because he's not living to take godship after this. It's undermining their um, their whole system of religion. It's hard to remember all the different plagues and all the different gods. I know that unless you wrote them down, you're not going to remember which one was Seth and Hameket and all the different pronunciations and changes and every city had their own gods. And you can see this. If you go to one commentator to the next, there's multiple layers of gods that are attacked. What I want you to realize is with the plagues, God obliterated the whole cult that was found in Egypt. If you're an Egyptian no matter what God you worshiped, one of the plagues wiped that God out of the way. You could not with integrity worship that God and say that God had power because the only God had shown them that there was no chance for that. What's the reaction? And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto thee that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. We kind of knew this was going to come take place. We'll talk about that. Chapter 4, 22 and 23, before Moses ever gets to Egypt, he's told, I'm going to kill their firstborn. 
That's what's going to end up happening. And it says here, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. And the word hardened, and, and it switches. There's two Hebrew words for hardened, depending on whether it's the Lord or Pharaoh, and it bounces in between. And I want you to understand this. This helps. The Lord strengthened his heart. He entrenched his heart. Um, and so you see this guy is locked into resisting God and then is losing the ability. God is basically strengthening him in the position that he's in. He's locking him in. And here's what's fascinating. Remember verse 3? Everyone else in Egypt is basically begging Pharaoh, let him go. And here he can't even, he can't even let go. He's lost the ability to, but he's been strengthened in what he already is. This tyrant, self-worshipping Pharaoh. Here's what's interesting. And I ask this because we're going to move through this plague a little differently to hopefully um, spur our own thinking. I want you to play in your mind. You're an Egyptian. You're Pharaoh. Pretend you're Pharaoh for a minute. You can do that here as long as you don't look at your spouse. You can be Pharaoh, okay? Just have at it. Um, You've watched everything God has said come true nine times. So think about this. Nine times this guy Moses and this guy Aaron have stood up and said, that's going to happen, 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 that, 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 nine times. And now that same person representing the same God that has literally obliterated your nation tells you that your firstborn child, along with everyone else who's in the country, is going to die. And you choose to gamble on it. How pig-headed do you have to be? How consumed with yourself do you have to be? Because look whose life is he gambling on. Is it his own? How many men here, if you endanger your child even remotely, your, your wife will just, you know, you're done for. I always worry when the kids hurt themselves. Like, was I at fault? I mean, that's the number one thing. Did I neglect something here, or is this completely the kid's fault? Like when Heather comes in, it's their fault. They did it. They made that choice. That, you know, Look, who doesn't come to protect? You have nine times, and it's not just snap in a week. This has taken place over months. Nine times, and it's never not happened. And he says, your son is going to die. The one that you pin all your hopes on. Look, and we don't understand that in our society, right? We're all about equality. I'm a fourth kid. I'm super into equality, right? With the kids, I'm like, do not give the oldest a double portion. That's not, not even remotely want that to happen, right? You can stop at four, but you don't need to stop at one, right? But in their society, firstborn son gets most of everything. They carry on the family name. They get a double portion of the inheritance. They get a lot. It is keyed up to focus in on that person. And yet... You're going to gamble everything. And I want us to learn from this two things. How deep is the rebellion in humanity? How, how hard can human beings be? And I want you to see Pharaoh represents humankind. And how deep our rebellion is. If you want a, a, a verse or a chapter that explains the depth of our rebellion in the New Testament, Romans 1. Romans 1 will articulate how rebellious we can be. Now, Romans 1 gets into the sins that we will resist, but ultimately we worship ourselves over God. And how far will humanity take it? To the nth degree. 
I, I find it fascinating to read um, through Revelation and Ezekiel and some of these passages that talk about the end times. And I always wonder, how in the world does a rebellion come up so high in humanity against what is obviously an impossible win? How, how, do the, how in the world do they resist to that point? Was because how wicked and rebellious can humanity be? And Pharaoh tells us to the nth degree that it doesn't matter how much evidence is put in front of them, they will resist. And then I have the second part to learning. Learn from this, the rebellion possible in you. How easily you can basically resist what is obvious in front of us. Now, as believers, we are supposed to be um, like Christ. We're supposed to grow in his likeness. But understand, as you look at Pharaoh, you say, well, I'll never be a Pharaoh. That's not who I am. Well, how easy is it to, for you to resist the truth that God's word has presented to you? How many people read God's word? And I've watched people do this, believers, and they read God's word. And to me, it's obvious. And they will come up with another explanation for what's there. Why do they do that? Why avoid the obvious? Because we will take rebellion all the way to the end. That we are that capable of rebellion. So as you see Pharaoh, one of the things I encourage you to do is not over-villainize him. He is a representation of us without redemption, without God. This is what it looks like. This is the reality of the situation. It's a Romans 1 situation. Now, most of the plagues, right? What happens when Moses says this is going to happen? What's the next step that always unfolds? It just happens, right? It, it takes place. Well, this final plague is going to show God's redemption of Israel, not only from the plague, but from death itself. So now God is not only not going to send flies on you or locusts or have your livestock die, but he is going to remove the loss, the death that is going to come into every family. God is redeeming them from that. And it's a redemptive work that warrants constant celebration and remembrance. What I find interesting is in these two chapters about the final plague, we spend 75% of the time or maybe more talking about how to remember what God has done. And we're talking about the Passover. So now we're, we're setting up for the Passover. And I want to mention this. God is clear to Israel that this is very important. And God has been very clear to us that our salvation is very important. And I'll talk about it a little bit later, but Christ dies as the Passover lamb. And you might say, wait, Kenny, he celebrated Passover with the disciples. Yes, he did, because they had a split. And when they thought to celebrate the, the Passover and where he was from, they celebrated a little bit earlier. But in Jerusalem, they would celebrate directly when Christ was crucified. So he fulfills the Passover lamb. His blood covers sin. And that's how we're passed over for judgment. I want us to recognize that here they sit in Egypt and God is going to spend a lot of time on being remembered as they position to leave. Now, if you're leaving for a big trip, what are you typically doing? And how are you packing? Quietly or frantically? How about you're moving forever? And God says, I need you to stop and I need you to think about what's taking place. And you're like, I need to gather jewels from my neighbors, right? That's, I got locked in on that. Okay, met another neighbor, I'll get some more jewels. This is great. But 
God is coming in at, at not a relaxed time, but in essence, a very busy, frantic change of life completely time. And he's saying, I want you to remember, he's setting up first uh, 12, 1 through 13. He's setting up the celebration of the first one. Now, it says, the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron on, in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be unto you. I have to look at the time. I forgot to put a watch on. So this this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, that month was the month of, I call it Nisan because it's easy to remember. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but it's just short one S to being a car. So it's, I call it Nisan for remembrance. That's our March and April. We're pretty close in our time frame to when Passover is about to unfold. And God says, let's change Let's change time. So how about instead of, and you heard about that, the Senate voted to make daylight savings permanent so there'd be no more jumping up and falling back. That's, of course, if the House passes it and Biden doesn't decide to veto it. Who knows? But either way, can you imagine if they passed and said, you know what, from now on, the year starts in the end of March. And that's when our year starts. It could happen. (laughs) Depends on how your taxes work. It might be advantageous, right? So who knows? But think about that. Talk about a dramatic change. Why would God change the running of the calendar for this? Why not just make the month special? Why switch it to be the start of the year? What is he, what is he indicating to us when he does that? It's, it's, it's completely a restart. It, it is, this, is, this is zeroed in. It's not just something that is important. It is what is important. This is the redemptive story. He is, he is highlighting for them and for us what is going to take place, what we're building to. Remember Genesis 3.15, the redemptive story. So God is making it very clear to Israel, this is when it starts. So the 14th was Passover, by the way. The 15th to the 21st is then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and tucked in there, 16th is the first fruits. Uh, they end up marking their doors with blood because when I see the blood... I will pass over you to destroy you. In other words, I will pass over and not destroy you. But so they have this lamb that they're going to have to take, and this, these instructions will be constantly repeated. God, as you work through these verses and, and take some time to read through it, he's going to tell them to get a lamb. And by lamb, don't think sheep. It's goat or sheep that can be used there. It's one year old, so it's it's pretty much full grown. It's without blemish. It's a male. And this round, they're keeping it from day 10 to day 14. They're to, they're to, to kill this. They're to, they're to consume the whole animal or burn what's left over. There's conversation about even combining some families to make sure they consume it all. They don't boil it. They roast it. And it's done with haste and it's designed for them to have a celebration. But it's not a one-off celebration. Instead, and as you look, so 1 through 13 is all about the Passover, and then 14 through 20 is about how we're going to celebrate this into the future, that this is not one time, this is constant, because verse 14 says, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And by the way, woven through all of the Exodus as they leave Egypt is this constant reminder to celebrate the Passover. We're going to finish the Exodus, and the first thing Moses is going to tell Israel is, remember to keep the Passover. Remember to keep the Passover. This is constant, 
And, and some people critique that saying, well, that could not be how Moses wanted to list this, because why would he in the middle of the Exodus tell them to keep the Passover and that, he, that God wants the firstborn from them? And other people comment saying, because that's what God was telling them what was important. This is critical to understand. The 14th celebrate Passover and then seven days with no leaven. And God was serious because if you were found eating leaven, you were cut off from Israel for good. Now, I think there might be a picture, maybe. Close. Thank you. I, I don't even have the pencil out there. This is a, somewhat of a picture I found in a book just to get a... Now, obviously, uh, the Israelites did not have this nice pottery and dishes, so they weren't packing it all in bubble wrap and putting it on their back. Much more hearty look. But this is just a, a sample picture of what would be eaten in wording that we can kind of understand. So more of a romaine, lettuce, boiled egg, celery. I have still no idea. Nuts and fruits, horseradish, lamb shank there, roasted. This is an idea. This would be a meal. Um, Passover Seder, is that what it's how to pronounce it? That would give you an idea of what they were eating. So as you're reading through this and they list it, I know that's a blurry picture. Uh, we searched online for a better one, but this is out of one of the books on the history of Israel. If you like history, it's worth buying. Uh, if you don't like history, it's a 600-page book you won't enjoy. So um, <laughs> depends on where your interest falls. But you get an idea of what kind of food they're eating, and they're eating this, in, in this sense, in, in a hurry. Um, the Passover pointed forward, though, to the perfect Passover sacrifice, which is Jesus, who, as I mentioned, is killed at Passover, who is the Passover lamb. Again, if you remember from Mark, and I'll repeat it again because I think it's helpful. I know it was for me, recognizing that he was celebrating Passover one night and then he was killed the next day. But that's when the group in Judea would have celebrated the Passover. And so he is sacrificed as the Passover lamb. And then what's interesting is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to how God, how serious God is. And due to time and my tendency to overshoot, I'm just not reading through all these verses. I'd love you to read them. And here's the thing. Don't speed read through the details. I want you to see the details and feel the weight of them. God is serious about what he wants Israel to do. Uh, in these verses, he will tell them that he doesn't want them to work at all. Verse 16, unless to prepare meals. He says, don't work for seven days. I want you to be focused on my redemptive work, is what he's saying. So the nation of Israel is being pulled out of Israel. They're seeing redemption from death with blood on the doorpost. The blood is why the angel passes over. And God says, I'm serious. I don't want you to forget this. I don't want you to say, hey, I got to work, but when I come back, I'll be sure to, um, I'll be sure to uh, get with you and take care of Passover and tack it on to the day and tack it on to the week. No, he says, I want, you to, I want you to stop what you're doing and I want you to focus in on what's taking place, your redemption. And then I have these questions. If God wanted Israel to be zeroed in on the Passover, on this redemptive picture that he ultimately fulfills with his own son for us for all eternity. If that's the case, um, how zeroed in should we be when we talk about the cross? Then here's the next question, maybe a better question. How zeroed in are you right now? Because we always can look at what we should be. Right? If someone says, how zeroed in, Kenny, are you on the cross? Like, Not as much as I should be. Right? Isn't that the classic? I know I could do better. 
But then what about evaluating how zeroed in on the cross you are? What does that mean? If they stop everything they're doing for this, at least this week, to focus on it, how does God want the cross involved in your everyday thinking? How involved is that in every decision we make? And I'm not saying you're like, okay, thinking of the cross, now I make a decision. Thinking of the cross, now I make a decision. It's supposed to permeate your existence. As a believer, the Passover lamb, Christ, who died for us and then causes death to pass us by, eternal death, how critical and how forefront is that supposed to be? And I hope that we can see the seriousness of what God calls Israel to do, and it is a foreshadowing to how serious we should be about what Christ has done for us, and it needs to permeate everything you do, your hobbies in your life. I'm going to give a real practical format, and I don't mean this in a guilt way. But take a minute, think about the people closest to you. Think about people you go to church with, that you see at church on Sunday. And I want to ask this question, I should think about it. How hard will you have to push to get people here on Good Friday to celebrate communion and Christ's blood shed for us that allows God's wrath to pass over how hard do you think it'll take to get some people to show up here? How hard will I have to pitch that on a Sunday? And look, I'm a salesman by trade, so this is what I do. But I know some people close to me that I know it's going to take a hard pitch because they're going to say, that's my Friday. That's my time. I do, I got Sunday in there. And I'm not, I'm not trying to pick. Look, I, I say that not to guilt anyone. I just want you to understand what I mean by how hard it is to say, and, and I'm not a person that's going to stand up and say, well, if you don't show up every time the doors of the church open, you're a terrible person. You're not, all right? Life is there and that's part of existence, but how much effort will you have to expend to the people you're closest to or friends with, and you say, wow, some of these people, it's like pulling teeth for them to show up. Let it get close to home. How hard is it to show up to church on a Sunday when Sunday's on a Christmas day? And I'll be honest, this is one of my frank moments. It drives me crazy that I have to argue with someone about coming to church on Christmas Day when it's Sunday. Crazy. As in, I hate doing it. As in, I feel like I shouldn't even. And it's the same with the Good Friday thing. Seriously. Why is that so hard? Well, the answer is simple, right? Because we're not zeroed in on what Christ has done. Because if honestly, we were thinking about Christ on the cross and taking me from hell to heaven from separated from God and under his wrath to not under his wrath, then this is not even a discussion point. We should have people signing up to have a seat versus begging them to fill a seat. Now, just because I say that doesn't mean we're going to practically have every seat filled. I get that, all right? I'm just, I want to throw out a practical idea, not just because I, I'm preaching up there that, well, people should show up. I'm just saying, how hard is it? And then I start looking at my own heart. Now I'm going to pick on myself. How belligerent, how difficult was I coming to church? Because I know what you can say, and rightfully so. Kenny, you have to be here. You're right. I know that, right? Between me and Theron, there's no getting out of this thing, right? We're going to be here. But then I look back at my own heart and my own disposition through my life and how I wasn't zeroed in on the cross and how easily I pushed it aside and found other things to do because I've gone to church enough and I've taken care of it. But, so I want us to really get practical with this because God here at the Passover is about to do a 
pretty amazing miracle that's going to cause quite the world-turning change, and yet we're numb to the cross in everyday life. Now, since the beginning of Exodus, we've been leading up to this plague, by the way. Exodus 4, 22 and 23 told us already where this was heading. I read 22 because it's important to remember this. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord Israel, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. So recognize this. From the get-go, God has looked at Israel as his firstborn. And then he says this, And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And that time has now come. And now we're going to see the plague. We're going to be seeing the plague unfold as we move through chapter 12. Um, let me see what kind of time I have to make sure how fast I need to talk. Pretty fast. I need to talk pretty fast. All right, I can do this. I've, I've talked fast before. Um, so I want to begin with 12, 21 through 28. I'm going to summarize it really briefly. This is Israel's preparation. Yet again, right? Haven't we done this? Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. 27 and 28. Then you shall say it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. From what? What did he deliver them from? death though right this is they're losing their firstborn you're delivered from facing the grief of death in your home he goes on as i'm trying to find where i'm at and the and the people bowed the head and worshiped they responded correctly and the children of israel went away and did as the lord had commanded moses and aaron so did they so we watch israel prepare and then with i call the most economy of words you can ever imagine we're given the plague in two verses here it is And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And I think that's the most poignant statement ever. From the guy who's the tyrant to the person in the prison cell, they all felt loss. And it was death. It was the same. It was horrific. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. The Passover is death passed them by. And you're Israel, and you've put blood on your door, and I don't know how much you believe or not. Maybe there's plenty in there. They're like, well, I'll see what happens, you know. They haven't seen a lot of the plagues. They've seen all the devastation. And then an unmistakable weeping takes place. And what do we find? Egypt's pain. What do we see? death. I'm going to give you one for instance, and again, I'm not going to be, I have my opinion on when they exited. There's other opinions and and great scholarship that's there, and actually you can find a lot of these connections through different times and datings. I'm a Thutmose III. I think that was the pharaoh. He's the guy that had the stepmother overbearing on him for 20 years. He's the great military leader. Here's what's fascinating. History shows that the crown prince Amenemat died sometime between his 24th and 35th year, which, by the way, the plagues fall right in the middle of that. That Thutmose III's oldest son, history shows us, died. Now, if you're an Egyptian historian, you never list defeat, so you never know why. They don't ever share that. He actually lost both his, um, his firstborn son and his, what they would call, primary queen. So the first queen, or really the only queen, 
all the others would have been concubines. He was a son of a concubine, so he was one took throne, wasn't, wasn't the son of the primary queen. And so what you have here is a loss, and we even have some historical data to line up. You might say, Kenny, that just proves that you're right. I'd love to claim being right and that being it, but the fact is you can look at different periods of history and you see loss of a firstborn. It's kind of spattered out. Uh, it's, what's fascinating is Amenhotep, Amenhotep II, who took the throne after Thutmose III, also had a loss of a firstborn, and his second son took throne. So it's amazing how so many different periods of history could fit. Obviously, I have my opinion based on my research, but I would be the first, and I told you back when we started, I'm not so dogmatic on something that's hard to be dogmatic on because great theologians and scriptural scholars have a difference of opinion and good arguments otherwise. I just wanted to share one, and you see it fit. How does Egypt respond, 31 through 36? This is the summary. Told Israel to get out and gave them every motivation to do so. If your neighbor really wanted you to leave and they had a million bucks in their bank account, they said, here's a million dollars, here is our, our cars, here's everything you need, uh, here's a credit card, you can max it out, just get out of here, get out of this neighborhood, leave. And you're like, hmm, house is worth about 250, 300, I'm out, you know, <laughs> keep the house. We'll buy your house, we'll pay for it. I mean, this is every motivation to leave. Why? And I want you to realize something. They feared now personally what would take place to them. They said, we be all dead men. You know what happened to hit home finally to all these Egyptians? And this is a sad, I think one of the saddest things to look at because they didn't bend when their firstborn would die. I should move off from the meal so people don't get hungry. Um, they don't move when their firstborn would die, but they get scared for their own life. And now they're petrified to get the Israelites out. The Israelites out. They, they want them gone. They, there's no staying behind hey, can I stick around? I think the farming land's going to open up here soon. And no, out, forced out, they go. And what we see in 37 through 41 is Israel's freedom. They left. And you'll see in those verses, after 430 years of being in Egypt, they were headed back to the promised land. Now, I'm going to come back to something. Maybe I'm beating a dead horse in this one. If you're telling this story, if I'm telling this story, I would have fixated on the plague. I would have been zeroed in on the weeping and the wailing and the devastation, not because I would gloat in it, but that would be the climax of the story for me. That would be how Egypt was crushed and defeated. The majority of what we've talked about is what God has done and remembering what he has done, as in he passed over the Israelites and death was removed because of, and we've seen it a couple times, the blood that's on the door. When I see the blood, the destroyer will not come in. When I see the blood, not because you're an Israelite, you notice that? When I see the blood, I'll know. Now, does God, does God need that? Does God need you to say, hey, I'm a Christian. There's it. Here's my, my fish symbol, whatever it is that we... He doesn't need it. Why does he make it? it? They were painting a picture of what's necessary. How can God's wrath pass over? By the blood. And then we look at the perfect Passover lamb and Jesus Christ, and it's because of his blood shed for us that he can then what? What do we not face? Death. We don't, but we also don't face God's wrath. Where did God's wrath get poured for our sins? It's on Jesus Christ. 
I've mentioned this before, and there's a lot of people that get really close to this or fall into this trap, and they think that when God the Father turned his back on Christ, that was just a, um, an analogy. It wasn't real. Um, I, I actually think scripturally that's heresy, and here's why. If God the Father didn't pour sin on Christ and turn his back on him, literally, then how did he pay for the sin? So it's a critical critical component, and we see God's wrath. Poor, we don't have it. And then I'm going to kind of close out 42 through 51. And I know I've been hammering this in, seeing the importance of what? Of the Passover. <clears throat> do you know that they do it again? Now we get the rules of the Passover. Let me read 42. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel and their generations. 43 through 51 rules of Passover yet again. Why? Because he brought them out. It closes out with this. The Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. Here's the application. The final plague brought a closing judgment on the Egyptians, though we're going to see their prized military thwarted soon as well. But the plagues and the exodus is here. It annihilated any remnant of their gods or thoughts of their power. They are petrified of God, as they should be. We have made God into a buddy that will do whatever we want and walk wherever we want him to go instead of viewing him as God and giving him the respect he deserves. As his children, we don't fear as the lost world fears. We respect, but the Egypt was in fear of God and that was the right response. If they weren't going to believe in him, they had better fear him. And they did. Their whole system of worship is gone. How do you walk in and say, man, I worship cows? Yeah, the dog of death, the fly of, of healing. You, you, any one of those gods that were represented. Remember the frogs, the frog-faced lady that was about, um, I think, fertility and, and newness and freshness coming and suddenly all you're doing is eating frog and you're like, I hate frogs and I definitely hate the frog-faced lady now, right? It's, it's gone. He has annihilated anything to do with their worship. Now, we would sometimes look and say, well, how mean is God? It's like this, the bully coming in and kicking over some of the kids' Legos, right? But what is he doing? And I want you to see again God's mercy. What's the most merciful thing and gracious thing God could do? You're worshiping something that's false, and what did he do? Annihilated it. What did he clear the path for? What could Egypt see? Yeah. He's made himself apparent. He's made himself clear. I'm not saying that they believe. They don't. But he's not being a mean bully, wiping all these gods off, saying, ha ha, I beat them, like a Greek mythological battle that's taking place. But instead he's showing them that these were idols, these were false gods, these were weak, these were nothing, and he's the only true God. That's his grace and mercy yet again on display. He did what he said he would do. And I put, what a mighty God we serve. On top of that, I want to add in that he established the Passover memorial knowing they and we need it because as humans, we're short-sighted. We're selfish. We lack a focus on the eternal. So in the midst of a mighty sacrifice, uh, and again, it's a plague. By the way, that plague is defined as a blow or a strike. It's the only plague that's defined that way. God makes sure we don't lose sight of who is in 
in control, who is central to it all, and it's him and not us. And so I have two questions here. Have we recognized our almighty God and what he can do? Have we looked at God and said, this is what God can do? And then what's been kind of beat home through this whole two chapters, and actually uh, chapter 13, if you have a Bible that describes it, remember the Passover is what my Bible says right above chapter 13. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify me on the firstborn. We're going to go all the way through setting aside the firstborn and how the Passover is important. We're going to see it all kind of tying in again. Have we remembered our Almighty God and what He has done? And that's what Israel is remembering. We're driving right close to Easter and the resurrection, and, and obviously because of Passover and that time, uh, obviously our Easter never stays the same because it's, it's some lunar thing and, and a pope picking something out there. But we're coming close to looking at the Passover lamb and celebrating it and thinking about what he has done. And that's what he was pinpointing to Israel. Remember what has been done. Why does God tell us to remember? Because we're selfish, short-sighted, forgetful, self-worshipping, you name it. Read Romans 1. That describes humanity. And we need to remember. And so that's kind of the call as you walk through it. Uh, next week, we're going to dive in and watch them leave, watch some of the requirements. Uh, they're going to battle. Moses is going to come up with a song, and then we're going to watch Israel start complaining, and we'll get into a new cycle that's there.